Today, we, along with Christians all over the world, uh, embark on a journey through the season of Advent. And uh, this is the first time, from what I understand, that Antioch has observed this kind of ancient Christian season of preparation and waiting for Christ's arrival in the world. And so we are setting aside uh, the next four Sundays, beginning today, leading up to Christmas, as a time to create space in our hearts to prepare room for Christ the King to show up in whatever way and ways he would choose this Christmas. And so two weeks ago, I introduced uh, this movement that we are joyfully joining this year called the Advent Conspiracy. And uh, it was launched a number of years ago by our good friends at Imago Day Community in Portland. And uh, this year, we as a church are uh, getting on board, not so much with a program, but with a vision of what would it look like to redeem Christmas, if you will. So I uh, showed a video a couple weeks ago that kind of introduces the idea, and I want to show it again. So some of you have seen it, but I thought rather than me trying to rehash the whole thing for you, uh, we'll just watch this video again real quickly. So that's the idea, and it's simply uh, 
the quest of trying to reclaim the true Christmas story. Out of all the other stories that get told this time of year, they're fun stories and they're good stories, but there's really one story that this whole thing is supposed to be rooted in, and it's our story as followers of Jesus, the story of God's arrival in the world in Christ. And we want to kind of explore together what would it look like to enter in to Christmas in a way that actually reflects Jesus and his kingdom and the way God has come into our world. And so for the next four Sundays, we'll be looking at the four so-called pillars of the Advent Conspiracy, beginning this morning with Spend Less. And a good friend Paul Krause is here, and he's going to help us out doing some uh, artwork on the side. So if I bore you to death, feel free to kind of just zone out and, and watch him. And uh, this is, uh, is going to be a fun one, at least for me. I'm going to have fun this morning. You may not, um, but that's okay. So let's go to the book of Matthew chapter 2 as we begin this journey of Advent together. Matthew in chapter 2. And we'll read this uh, familiar, famous story of the events that take place not long after Jesus' birth in the world. Matthew 2, verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them, where is the Messiah, where the Messiah was to be born? In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and as soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, 
Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. And so here we have the story of the first Christmas. And the way Matthew tells this story, we're given a picture of two kings. And he intentionally describes these two kings and their kingdoms in a way that would invite the reader to kind of compare and contrast these two who would both take on the title King of the Jews. So this morning we're going to look at these two kings and their kingdoms. In verse 1, he tells us two very important things about the first Christmas. That it happened in a place called Bethlehem in Judea, and it happened during the time of King Herod. And so it's important for us to understand the significance of that time period historically. And we'll start by looking at this first king, who we're told was the king of the day, King Herod. Um, what do we know about King Herod? The first thing we know is that he's the king of Judea, which is essentially a remnant of the nation of Israel, uh, Jewish people who are now living under Roman oppression. Okay? And so Herod himself wasn't Jewish. He had kind of worked his way in the back door politically through having the right connections and knowing who to kiss up to politically and through being kind of wise and, uh, and savvy. And so his father had converted to Judaism, so he kind of find a, found a way in through the back door. And Herod builds this epic kingdom, um, and a very impressive empire. But we know from history he's incredibly insecure about any threat that would, that would be posed against his empire. In fact, he was so insecure that any time he perceived that there was a threat to his empire, he would do whatever it took to, to do away with the threat, even if it meant killing the people who were closest to him. So, for example, you may not know this, Herod the Great kills three of his own sons because he's worried that they're going to try to take over his kingdom. Not only that, he actually kills one of his wives, he kills his mother-in-law, kills at least two or three of his own siblings, several of his key advisors, and then as we're told in Matthew 2, threatened by this new baby king that's born, he kills, he orders the genocide of all the baby boys under the age of two. Okay? So an incredibly unstable and violent and ambitious king. And he was not real popular with the people, as you can imagine, right? So <laughs> he knew how much everybody hated him. And when he became sick on his deathbed and knew that the end of his life was near, he was afraid that instead of mourning on the day he died, that the Jewish people he ruled over were going to celebrate and so what he did on his deathbed, he issues a decree that all of the most prominent leaders in the Jewish community in Judea would be imprisoned, and that on the day he died, they were all to be executed at the exact same time, so that the Jews would mourn 
on the day of his death instead of celebrate. So that's how desperate he is. That's how insecure he is. That's how greedy and wicked this king is. And he holds this title, King of the Jews. But like I said, he got there in a really sort of dishonest or politically wise way. Kind of house of cards kind of stuff, if you know (laughs) what that's about. And he builds this amazing empire. This was an impressive empire by any standard. Herod was known for his, for being kind of a genius architect and had these grand visions for buildings that that had never existed before. So he builds these huge coliseums and palaces and theaters and stadiums. And and, uh, he even went after the temple, the Jewish temple. And he came in and saw what God had asked the people to build. And he goes, I think I can do that better. So he expands it. I can make this better than God did. One of the most famous or kind of uh, quintessential Herod pieces that we have is this palace called the Herodium. We've got a picture of it today. Next slide. And if you've been to Israel, uh, maybe you had a chance to visit it. It's that mountain in the background. Now here's what's crazy. I've been there. I've hiked up to the top of the Herodium. It's about the, kind of reminds me about a Pilot Butte-sized mountain. And it's in the middle of the desert. So Herod, (laughs) this used to be flat land. Herod wants a place where his palace can reign over his kingdom. And so he has slaves literally build a mountain in the middle of the desert. And for years, slave labor piles up dirt upon dirt upon dirt and builds this mountain in the middle of the desert. And then at the top, he builds this palace, the Herodium, where he lives. And it's an epic place. You can see the ruins today. I've walked there, and you can see where there were these huge swimming pools, and where there were these great banquet halls, and there was this theater. Now, we don't think a home theater is that big of a deal anymore. Most of us have a home theater of some kind. In his day, a home theater meant a stage where people would come to your house and do plays for you, right? So he had built this incredibly luxurious, lush pad for himself that was at the top of this mountain that he had built for himself so that he could literally look down on everyone else in the kingdom. So Herod's kingdom is pretty impressive, And it's a kingdom that's built on wealth and status and power and greed and accumulation. Those are the marks of the great King Herod. And that's the first king in the story. Then, three and a half miles from the Herodium, there's this little insignificant village called Bethlehem. And we're told that it's in this little town that another king is born. And this king would also become known as the king of the Jews. But we know that at this point in the story, this king isn't impressive at all, is he? He's the child of poor refugee parents. He's literally born in a barn to an unwed teenage mother. And the only ones who came to visit him upon his birth 
were this ragtag group of shepherds who were the lowlives of that day. And so you have Herod, this great, powerful king who rules from above, and then you have Jesus, a baby, this meek, weak, little king born in a manger. And there's nothing impressive about Jesus' kingdom at first glance. It's small, it's simple, and it's humble. But we know that one day, the baby king would grow up and he would begin to teach what his kingdom is like. And he would describe his kingdom with metaphors like it's like a mustard seed, the smallest seed in the garden. Or it's like a little bit of yeast that gets sprinkled into the bread dough. Or it's like this buried treasure in the ground that nobody would even know they're walking right above. And Jesus would describe his kingdom as being not from this world, but from another world. Meaning his kingdom doesn't play by our rules. His kingdom isn't going to be impressive to anybody who lives in Herod's kingdom. But Herod and a few others who are paying attention know that this new baby king is a threat to the status quo, to Herod's empire. And so how does he respond? In verse 3, we're told that when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. Okay? It doesn't mean like irritated or bugged. It means he was freaking out. Deep emotional turmoil, and we know that he's already a bloodthirsty and unstable man. He's willing to do anything to protect his empire, And so he decrees this genocide of all the baby boys in the land. Thankfully, we're told that Jesus' parents had been warned about this threat and they'd fled to Egypt. By the way, aren't you thankful that there are places where Middle Eastern refugees are welcomed? Just throw that out there for fun. Two kings, two kingdoms. The great, impressive kingdom of Herod built on grief, wealth, greed, wealth, power, accumulation, money, and then this humble, subtle, unimpressive kingdom by this baby born in a barn. I want to show you a clip. It's the first three minutes of a documentary by Morgan Spurlock. He's not a Christian, but he made this movie called What Would Jesus Buy? And uh, that's all I'll say. As fall turns to winter across this nation, many millions will converge on centers of worship, large and small, to celebrate and give thanks 
to a familiar God. He tells us to buy now and pay later. He tempts us with promises of endless credit as he leads us down the path to eternal debt. Tis the season to be shopping. There's just one more thing you have to do before the end of the year, and that is shop yourself silly. People were saying, you know, look, we can't just let the terrorists win and just stay home. Millions of Americans are hitting the stores. Tradition on this Black Friday is get out and shop until you drop. We used to be a nation of producers and are now a nation of consumers. American stores could already fit every man, woman, and child in North America, South America, and Europe inside them at one time. Toys, Elmo, and PlayStation 3. Love Elmo. Hot gadgets, appliances, toys. Gift for you guys. Flat panel TVs are big this year. We have to have that, or it won't be a happy holiday. For the first time since the Great Depression, our household personal savings rate is below zero and 60% of us are in long-term debt on our credit cards. We now spend under one hour a week in religious or spiritual time and over five hours a week shopping. Over 15 million Americans may be clinically addicted to it. People saw that there is very limited supply and they were behaving like animals. Mm. I just like to say, as I always say, sometimes I enjoy my diamond ring much more than I enjoy my husband. If you feed something that she doesn't like, she says, oh, mommy, I don't like farts. She actually goes potty. You know people will run over a pregnant woman to get to the item they want. There is no, no surprise there. Three quarters of us view Christmas with more dread than anticipation. Yet we'll spend half a trillion dollars on Christmas this year and create five million tons of extra waste. So that's Christmas. If you had to guess which king we are celebrating during Christmas in America, which king would you guess? Like, this sounds a little bit harsh, because I know I'm kind of knocking over some sacred cows here. But this is, this is madness, is it not? Right? And I know it's a caricature, and maybe here in Bend we're not, like, quite as sucked in to the consumerism. But it's pretty undeniable that King Herod's kingdom is alive and well. And that consumerism has essentially become the new religion of America. Now, I know that's a harsh claim to make, but I hope you can see that there's something impressive about the empire of the dominant culture around us, which is essentially the economy. And maybe we wouldn't think of consumerism as a religion, but it really has all the marks that any major religion has, starting with this thing called transcendence. 
Transcendence basically just means the existence of what's beyond the material world. All religions would teach that there's more to life than what we can see. And so there's something about this religion, consumerism, that attaches meaning or buys into promises that these consumer items offer us. And so in a consumer culture, which is the water we swim in, we don't even know that we do, but in a consumer culture, all the material things that money can buy are more than just things, aren't they? Every item that we can buy has some sort of significance or meaning attached to it. And we don't even notice, but think about if you were going to buy a new car. <clears throat> You're not just looking for transportation, right? Otherwise, we'd all buy just the most simple and reliable vehicles. But if you could buy a new car, what you're also buying is a new identity. How do I want to see myself? How do I want other people to see me? What kind of image do I want to convey to the people around me? Or with the clothes that we wear every day, they serve a greater purpose than simply covering our nakedness. But they are our way of finding identity within the community, of showing either how much alike or how much different we are than the people around us. The technology that we use, or even something as simple as the groceries that we buy, there's this meaning or this promise. And you walk into the grocery store and you're going, well, this orange says organic and this one doesn't. What kind of person do I want to be seen as? Or what if my neighbors see me leaving the store with this non-organic orange or whatever it is, right? There's status, there's identity, there's security or meaning that we attach to every item. There's a promise connected to every purchase. There's a transcendence to consumerism. I mean, this is what advertisers know. They're not just selling their product, are they? They're selling a new and better life. Their job is basically to get you to believe that your life sucks. So if you buy their product, then your life won't suck anymore. That's the story that we're hit with thousands of times every single day. Infomercials are the epitome of this whole thing. Do you ever get sucked in? Not long ago, Jen and I had a, foot, I had a football game on, and then an infomercial came on. The TV was just on. It was this thing called the GT Express 101. Have you ever seen this? I got a picture. It's like a foreman grill, but it's, get this, it's got two cooking pods, okay? Not just one, it's got two. And so you can throw, as we're watching this infomercial, you're, you can throw a bunch of random foods in this thing, whatever you have around the house, and in seven minutes, you have this amazing, healthy, gourmet meal. Like literally whatever you got. Like a couple potatoes, an Oreo, some orange juice, a can of soup. Seven minutes later, and you're eating like a king. Right? And it's perfectly cooked. It's low-carb. It's gluten-free, all this stuff. Right? And as they do this infomercial, they're promising all these things. Like you'll never have to do dishes again. Like, all you do is wipe down the GT Express 101 with a paper towel, 
and you can move on to the more important things in life. You don't have to do dishes, right? So Jen and I are glued to the TV watching this thing. Like, this is amazing. And, and one of the kids, like, pushes a button on the remote, changes the channel, and we're like, no, go back. What's going to happen with the chocolate cake? Like, <laughs> this is insane. And then they start doing all these video testimonies. You've seen these, like, real shoppers or, you know, real customers telling how their life is different now that they have this product. Like, I used to be really fat and lonely, and now... <laughs> <laughs> I've lost 50 pounds and I'm dating a supermodel or, you know, whatever it is. Like, this thing changed my life. And, and they're just selling, not simply a product, but they're selling this vision of all of your problems are going to go away. Your identity crisis is going to be solved. The life that you've always wanted. Now, we don't even notice it. Because that's what all advertisements are doing. But Jen and I are sitting there watching and going, man, this thing could change our lives. For two easy payments of $19.95. Pretty good deal. So ours should be here in four to six weeks. <laughs> Just kidding. We overnighted it. So, <laughs> But we imagine our lives when we have these things, whatever they may, may be. We imagine a life without pain or problems. And of course, we never say any of this out loud. Like, if I could just have that, I'd be happy. We don't even think it out loud. Because Herod's kingdom is so deeply ingrained into our culture. And the crazy thing is that it actually works for a little bit. For a little bit, you get that thing that car, that new outfit, that new phone, that new product. And for a moment, days, weeks, maybe a few months, it actually works. And you enjoy the new status, the new identity, the security or whatever that it gives you. But it doesn't last that long, does it? Before we start thinking about the next thing we need. Now there's a new phone out. Now there's a better car. Now the style has changed and we have to keep up. There's this other thing that we want. And here's what's crazy. We thrive on that as consumers. It actually, the obsolescence of our consumer items gives us hope. It gives us hope that this thing, this next thing, this bigger, better, more expensive thing is the thing that I need. And so we thrive on it. And we continue to be discipled by a consumer culture through these rituals of shopping and of looking and of buying and of spending. We just have to have these things. Now, as it comes to Christmas, this whole thing just gets blown way up exponentially, right? And all of the advertisements and, and all of that stuff exposes this religion of consumerism. Banksy does this better than anybody, if you know his work. <laughs> There's an ad right now that basically says... Um, if you buy your loved ones these things, 
then they won't just love the holidays, they'll love you. And so we go back and we look at these two kings and their two kingdoms. One kingdom that's built on greed, wealth, accumulation, money, stuff, and power. And this other kingdom that's built on humility and love and justice and incarnation. And it's a kingdom in this story that when it is visible, when it becomes tangible, just like the Magi, there's an experience of joy and worship. Now the problem is, as we've taken on this identity of consumers, we bring that into our faith. We bring it into our services as the church, where we show up looking to consume religious goods and services. And even in our personal walk with God, we turn Jesus into another consumer product. That thing that for the first six months that I knew him, he was amazing. And all of my deepest needs were met. But I've been trained as a consumer that there's always something next. Always something better. Always something after. I've been trained to look for what's coming next. And we move on. And at best, we hold on to our faith in Christ as a remnant of a simpler time, almost like a memory of childhood that I don't want to let go of. And we don't renounce Jesus. We don't push him off the throne in a literal or a a verbal way. We don't say, hey, I'm going to stop worshiping Jesus and worship money and stuff instead. But instead, we try to worship both God and money. Which it seems like Jesus said something about that at some point. And so we keep him in our back pocket. We keep him as part of our Sunday ritual or the compartment of our life we call religion or faith or spirituality. But functionally, We are pursuing identity, security, fulfillment, and meaning in the things that we have or buy. And so the invitation this Christmas starts with this. What if we could learn how to celebrate God's arrival in the world in a way that looks more like Jesus' kingdom than Herod's? That would be completely countercultural, wouldn't it? That would look very, very different from the way that the world around us lives, not just at Christmas, but all around the year. And so, what if we started by simply committing that this Christmas we're going to resist the empire? 
We're going to reject our consumer identity and embrace our identity as those who are united with Christ. And that's where we talk about spending less. Now, I don't know exactly what that would look like for you to spend less this Christmas. But I know for many of you, this will be incredibly good news. I'm giving you permission to spend less money. So maybe, for you, a commitment to resist the empire by spending less would simply look like not spending money you don't have. Because that's the insanity of Christmas, right? That we spend money we don't have to buy people things that they don't need. That's Herod stuff. So don't use a credit card. Maybe that's, maybe that's what you would come away with. Just spend the money you have and then call it good. Some of you are super anxious right now. I'm reading this thing and it's like, oh my gosh. Why are we? Because this is part of the kingdom that we're part of, right? This is part of our identity. You're thinking, what are people going to think of me? What kind of parent am I? What kind of son-in-law am I? I don't know who I would be if I wasn't allowed to spend money I didn't have. Right? You see how deep this stuff goes. So we're not making a new religion. We're not saying, man, if you happen to use a credit card, then, you know, anybody's going to judge you or anything like that. I'm just going... What would this look like? Imagine with me. Dream with me. Maybe you'd simply cut your, your Christmas budget down significantly. And instead of $500, you're going to spend $300 or whatever, whatever it is. Maybe you could commit to just buying one or two fewer gifts or finding some sort of creative way to spend less money. Now, the point isn't to spend less in a greedy sort of way so that we can keep more for ourselves. The point is that as we reject this consumer identity, we actually are freed up to use our money and our stuff in a way that reflects Christ and his kingdom in the world. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, there's this incredible passage where Paul is writing to the church in Corinth about being a generous community. And he says, if you are going to call yourselves a community of Christ followers, then one of the inevitable signs that you have received the grace of God through faith is that you will live a life of generosity. A life of selfless giving. Now he's not talking to rich people here. In fact, he's talking to one of the poorest communities, one of the poorest early churches. And he celebrates the fact that they get to be generous. And he sums it all up in verse 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians 8 by saying, I'm not commanding you but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that, that, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become 
rich. Do you catch what Paul's saying there? He's saying to be a community that reflects Jesus and his kingdom is not a community that's marked by greed or power or accumulation or consumerism, but the true sign of a community that's bought into Christ's kingdom is that of generosity. And he says, this is how I know that you actually get grace when you are generous. Because what we see in Christ and even in that simple, humble, little baby king in the manger is a God who was rich but became poor, who emptied himself, who gave of himself, who humbled and lowered himself. He says, so that through his poverty we might become rich. Do you think he means rich like Herod? So you can have your own sweet mountain? (laughs) He means rich in the grace of God. A blessed life. Lived close to Christ in his kingdom. A life poured out in love, in justice, in humility, and all of the things that mark God's arrival in the world. And so at the very least, if you uh, are still pondering what to do with any of this, I would simply suggest this shift. That we would move from using people and loving things to using things and loving people. To move from Herod's kingdom to Christ's reflect and ponder on the grace and generosity of God and use Christmas as an opportunity to be generous with ourselves in addition to our material gifts or or whatever else. So our hope, and we'll get to this in a couple more weeks, is that as we spend less, we'll actually still be giving gifts and in fact we'll be giving even better gifts. We'll be giving gifts that look like the way God has given himself to us. And next week, we'll talk about giving more. We'll have a fair out in the commons area to give you some ideas of what that would look like. But then when we get together in here on Christmas Eve, that money that we didn't spend buying people stuff they don't need, we're actually going to pool that together. And we're going to give it away. To people both in Bend and on the other side of the world, who legitimately have needs. And we'll actually get to be part of the movement of Christ's kingdom here on earth, a movement of justice and love and truth and beauty. So which God will you serve? Which kingdom will you be part of? I hope that you'll come on this journey with us in whatever way the Spirit would lead you to. Will you join me in prayer? Father, we're thankful for your generosity that you have shown us in Christ. That though we so easily get led astray and bow down at the altars of consumerism 
and materialism and money and wealth and stuff that you have entered into our world to rescue us out of darkness and bring us into the light, out of the bankrupt life that is consumeristic identity and into a new identity as your sons and daughters. And so this morning, we simply want to say yes to you, that we will choose to worship the true king, your son Jesus, at Christmas and for the rest of our lives. I pray that you would give us the grace and the faith to do that. We love you. We trust you. Lord Jesus, you are a good king who's given your life for us. And so we offer ourselves all we have and all we are back up to you this morning. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.